mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy. And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University, specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Hi, Yael. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. You too. What uh, What do you have to introduce to our listeners today? Well, so I have a wonderful interview that I did with Dr. Robin Walzer. She is a psychologist and an author of several books. And we t- we're talking today about the topic of empowering women. And this is something that's very important to me personally and really in line with my values. And I know it's a, a topic of great passion for Robin as well. She's been a really, um, I think, brave and thoughtful voice about women's issues and gender-based oppression that we see um, happening in our world in so many different ways. And so I really loved having this conversation with her. Yeah, I can't wait to hear the conversation because I think it's such an important and timely topic. And it's so much dominating the news these days. But I think that most People have witnessed, most women certainly have witnessed the sense of oppression and gender bias in their personal lives and their professional lives. And what's interesting is that you even see it in professional worlds like ours, in psychology, which is heavily female-dominated. We still bear witness to gender bias and um, oppression of women's voices. And I think that that is why it's such an important topic to be talking about at this time and, and moving forward. Absolutely. And I find more for myself that the more I pay attention to it, the more I do see it playing out in big and small ways in the world, but also in my life. And it's what I hope is that when people listen to this interview, it will get them thinking and paying attention to it. And, you know, that's a big agent for change. So I hope this is a helpful contribution and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Dr. Robin Walzer is the director of TL Consultation Service and works at the VA's National Center for PTSD and is an associate clinical professor at the University of California at Berkeley. She's a licensed psychologist and maintains an international training, consulting, and therapy practice. Dr. Walzer is an expert in acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, and has co-authored three books on ACT, including Learning ACT, The Mindful Couple, and Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for the Treatment of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. She has expertise in traumatic stress and substance abuse and has authored a number of articles and chapters and books on these topics. And I have a personal connection with Robin. I've known Robin for several years now. We work together on some VA training in ACT. And I have to just say personally that Robin is someone who I just 
admire so much personally and professionally that I am really delighted that she is on the podcast today. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the kind words. I'm uh, delighted to be here as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I also want to just mention a couple things. Robin, you have an upcoming book, and it's called The Heart of Act, Developing a Flexible, Process-Based, and Client-Centered Practice Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And Robin, so you said you, the book will come out here probably in a couple months, you were saying? Like yeah, late fall, early next year, somewhere in that time frame. Sounds great. Well, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be a great book. I may have seen an excerpt of it, and I'm really excited about the book. And I hope you'll come back on and join us to talk about it when the book comes out. I really look forward to doing that. I'm excited about the book. I think it offers some new information uh, in acceptance and commitment therapy and does invites clinicians to consider their own process a fair bit. So I'm, uh, I will be more than happy to come back and uh, uh, talk about it again. Wonderful. Looking forward to that. And also something else you have coming up that's really relevant to our topic for today is that you're doing a workshop for mental health clinicians in August, and you're co-leading this with some other female ACT experts, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's called the ACT Boot Camp for Women, Power Through Psychological Flexibility in August, August 16th through 19th in San Diego. So people will probably get a little teaser today on what you're going to be covering in that workshop. It looks really fabulous. I looked at the lineup and the, the speakers and the topics, and I think it's going to be amazing. I wish I could go. I can't go, but I would have loved to have been there. Um, and if anyone hears something they like today and wants to sign up, you can sign up on the Praxis website. Praxiset.com. P-R-A-X-I-S-C-E-T.com. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. And is there any particular, like, background that people need to have to be able to join that? Well, there's some recommended readings, but we're really trying to shoot for all levels of uh, individuals who are interested or want to participate, uh, uh, largely targeted at mental health providers uh, who are working with women and women's issues, but it doesn't mean it's only for women. We really hope to have men there as well, or people who identify as men, people who identify as women, like like all genders welcome. And it is the first praxis that uh, acceptance and commitment therapy boot camp that is all women presenters. And so that's got a unique feature to it as well, which we're super excited about. Cool. Sounds great. Well, yeah. speaking of, um, well, first of all, welcome, Robin, Thank to Psychology Off the Clock. Um, and speaking of empowering women, that is our topic for today. So um, we're going to kind of delve into some issues related to working with women clinically and just some bigger, I think, kind of cultural and internal, um, you know, issues that come up often in doing work with women and helping women's empowerment. I think this is a topic, Robin, that we're both very passionate about, and so so I'm really happy to have the chance to talk to you about it. And I'm curious um, to hear from you about why this topic is important to you personally. How did you end up kind of doing this line of work? Well, uh, I, did, I ended up in psychology for a number of reasons, but uh, why women's issues are so important to me, of course, is multifaceted, but I think largely has to do with the childhood that I uh, grew up in. I, I grew up in a family where I wasn't allowed to be angry. Uh, 
I was to be seen and not heard. Uh, and not only was it about me being a child, but it was also about gender. Uh, my um, family had a lot of difficulties, and uh, my father um, uh, made things particularly challenging. And I've said in, in other places that there was quite a bit of violence in our family, especially towards my mother. And to have that be okay is really sad and challenging to me. I mean, I would um, love to find a way where women are no longer objectified and treated as um, objects to um, use as a person's will or to be defined by men. Uh, women have their own minds and their own ways and their... Um, amazing and they just sometimes many times I guess I would say don't have the opportunity to express that because they're oppressed in so many ways mm-hmm. well I appreciate you talking about your personal history with that and your experience and how that's played out for you I, I think that's something really brave that I'm just hearing you share that experience and hearing women speaking up in that way I think can be really scary even just to to say as much as you've just said just now. Um, so thank yeah, you. Uh, oh, you're, uh, you're welcome. Even as I've said it, I've worried a little bit about, like, what will that mean? And if people hear it, what will they think? Like, all of these, like, what will men think? And will I be, you know, thought of as hysterical? Or, you know, there's all kinds of things that show up when you start speaking about um, women being oppressed. Mm-hmm. And I think because some people say that that's not the case. It doesn't happen. It's not me. They don't understand that the way that they're behaving towards women is actually part of the problem. And I think it's hard to uh, do a self-examination around those things for all of us because, you know, women can behave towards women in the same way men do. And uh, also telling them to quiet their voices and to uh, be uh uh, more appropriate and to, you know, uh, not be angry and that's not appealing, that's not ladylike, that's not whatever the messages are. And um, I don't think we're as though, I'm probably not aware of all of the different messages that we get as women that tell us to be quiet. Right. They're so um, subtle sometimes. And I find, I was actually talking to a good friend of mine and we were talking about how it happens even, I think, in our field, you know, in psychology and in mental health. And that's discouraging because sometimes it feels like we should be more aware of that. And sometimes that's where I think it's the most upsetting because it, it is well-intentioned, thoughtful people. And I think that sometimes it's just missed or people aren't seeing it. And that's that's something that I I think it can happen in so many different contexts that we just don't even notice it if it's not blatant. I think that that's absolutely the case. And this has been written about for a very long time. I mean, the, if we just look at psychology, the male-to-female ratio and who is where and in what positions. And this is changing, but it's changing incredibly slowly. And still, even today, um, the male dominance in positions of power and pay is very different than for women. 
even in this field of psychology where you'd think that we would be, or you'd hope we'd be a little bit more enlightened because we study these kinds of things. And, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when I think back to my university days, it was mostly female um, students and largely male mm-hmm. professors. Yep. And I think that's still true. I even uh, uh, attended, I became a, um, a professor right out of graduate school and uh, started on a tenure track position. And it's interesting because, like, I had the opportunity there to be a female voice in a university setting. But I looked around um, at the makeup of this particular department, and I saw myself and one other woman. Mm-hmm. And in a town hall meeting, there was discussions about pay and parking. And I thought, this just isn't what I want to spend my life doing and the you know I looked around the room as mostly male males with you know semi gray hair and uh, the women just me and this other woman just listening in and I thought I can't I don't want to do this I don't mm-hmm. want to be in this setting and um, I felt even discouraged at that time and I think it's been a challenge ever since yeah you know, my first year of graduate school at Harvard in the psychology department, William James Hall, there's a conference room where they have pictures up of all the tenured professors who have retired and, you know, all men, except at the very end, right around the time I was there, there were starting to be a few women, very few people of color, just all men. And I mean, it was a little disheartening to sit there in that room. You know, I was so excited to be starting graduate school at Harvard and you just don't see too many role models that look like me, you know? Precisely. I was actually thinking about this the other day, like who are the female role models that we can turn to who have their own voice, who are not shaped by uh, feeling like they have to be more like uh, a male, uh, which, you know, in, in their in their socialization, that works, and I, I don't want to sound too critical around those kinds of things, but I don't think it's my voice, and I'm right. not sure that it's women's voices. I think women need to define that and uh, come together and define um, what that voice is, what a voice of empowerment is. And um, I just thought, who could I look to? Mm-hmm. And there's very few people. Michelle Obama occurs to me. You know, like she's someone who um, has a strong female voice that I quite like, uh, you know, and she's a woman who's in power, but still not the most powerful place, right? It's still <laughs> Second fiddle, you know, right. right. It still has that quality of um, being a little bit not in, not in power in the, in the way mm-hmm. I think of it. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's a great question that I think is a kind of some a place that I wanted to start out here, um, which is this issue. You've, you've posted this on a listserv we're both on, and you're raising it now, which is how do we define female empowerment if not from the male perspective? Because it's one thing to say, okay, women, go out there, be stronger, be more confident, speak up more, etc. Well, that's just women trying to kind of fit the mold. So what, I don't know if you have an answer to this because this is a very big question. <laughs> but how do you define 
women's empowerment, Robin? What, what would you have to say about that? Well, I am struggling with it and trying to work out, like, what would that be? What would that look like? And one of the things that I know about women is that they work relatively well together. They're not as competitive as men. And so one of the things that I think female empowerment might contain is something that many women come together and design and form. And so it wouldn't be, you know, just a single voice saying, I declare this uh, as power, like having money or being at the top of the capitalistic structure or, mm-hmm. you know, holding a position at a um, as a supervisor or manager somewhere or CEO or CFO or whatever you want to call it. But I also don't think it is... Um, being stealthy or quiet or behind the scenes or, you know, uh, being told to what we've always been told, which is be good girls, be Mm -hmm. quiet, be kind. Um, All of those are, um, the be kind part I think is important and cooperation is important. But I sort of think that we need to find something that's not about the way women are socialized, and it's not a way. It's not the way men define power. It's probably somewhere in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. It probably contains um, a voice that is uh, persistent, firm, yet able to be heard. Uh, it's a voice of commitment and passion, but not anger, although I want to be careful about that. I mean, not anger in the way of screaming and yelling, you become another hysterical woman. I think women have a lot to be angry about, Um, but how do we use that anger effectively to move the way we want to be heard and how we want to be, start to define empowerment in a way that feels effective for women, but isn't just about somebody else saying what what it is. It's we get to say what it is. Right. And maybe that itself is empowering. Mm-hmm. Is it confidence? I don't think it's confidence. Unless you want to define confidence, liter- confidence literally. Because confidence is a male sort of thing. He, you know, he's got a lot of confidence. He's really powerful. But, it, you know, define literally it's with fidelity, with trueness to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so if it's persistent and true, those feel important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, as I'm thinking about it, like these are the kinds of things that are sort of beginning to filter in. But lastly, what I'd want to do is like put these ideas out for other women to explore and comment on and, and um, you know, think about and add to. Mm-hmm. And so we create it together together. Uh, uh, which is something I think women do pretty well. Yeah, like a communal sense of what it is, not just one person on high telling everyone. Yeah. Yeah, because that's, that's very male. <laughs> right. And it seems implicit in this is um, just valuing more of what women have to offer. And that that's a big piece to me of, here's my contribution, is a big piece of that is that it's not about, um, it, it's more about valuing what women bring because I think that so often women are dismissed or not listened to or not speaking up. Can we make room for women's voices and can we value them as they are? 
I agree with that because, and as they are, is the most important piece of that, what you just said, in in my opinion, is because the way women communicate can be a bit different. It's a, maybe a little bit more tentative. There's more questions, more wonderings. There's more like invitation for feedback, and um, that is seen in some sense as. Um, well, in the sort of worst sense, I guess, kind of dis- dismissible and wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you hear what's being said, it can be quite valuable and really important. And so the way it's being said is questioned. And I'd kind of like to have the way it's being said valued itself. Mm-hmm that we hear with all of the way women speak intact, that they don't need to suddenly start, you know, saying things in some special kind of way. Can we communicate as we communicate and be heard? I don't know what that entails, but it probably entails awareness on uh, a number of levels by everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. More of a change for everyone for the better. Yeah. 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 And so another thing I've noticed about your your work here and the workshop that you're providing is that the timing seems quite um, right on the money. (laughs) So there's so much going on right now. Can you just talk a little bit about why now and why, how does this, you know, empowering women, um, you know, topic fit into the broader, I guess, history of what's happening right now? Well, some of it has to do with just some more personal things that happened and thinking about um, some things that I'm um, connected to and quite proud of, like the Association for Contextual and Behavioral Science and the work that they're uh, doing that just pro-social work uh, about cooperation and inclusion, diversity, mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things. And... Um, uh, but even there, I can see places where change is needed. And um, then on, layered on top of that, I think, you know, we've got the Me Too and the Time's Up movement happening. I think some of this has to do with Donald Trump and him being elected and information coming out about him abusing women. Uh, so it's like a convergence of um, many things happening at one time that has led to this real sort of women's movement of a different nature than the kind, let's say, like the suffrage movement when women were first uh, trying to get the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, is a bit of a fascinating history. I mean, women who wanted to vote were considered crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they like there was something wrong with them for wanting to vote. Um like psychologically wrong with them, mm-hmm. you know, and it's so like I'm chuckling now, but can you imagine being those women back then and being called crazy because you wanted to cast a vote for who was going to lead you? Right. Just trying uh, to fight for rights and they were thrown in jail, they were the victims of persecution, they were treated as crazy, and all they wanted was right, more rights. Well, you see it's still happening today, right? Like uh, some women will report that something happened to them and they, they're they questioned and is it true and it's not the case. And, you know, um, you know, woman after woman after woman's 
stepping forward and saying this happened and confirming things and still there's people who don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of wonder, like, how much evidence do you need? And I was really super encouraged when uh, there was the Women's March uh, on Washington. What a fantastic event that actually turned out to be a worldwide event. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and a friend of mine, Jor- Jordana Hazam, attended, and it was just a fantastic day for women but not nearly enough. I mean, it was even criticized, right? And there were lots of, co- you could even hear people saying it's too much, it's over the top, and the pink hats were criticized. And just, you know, like there's all kinds of ways in which when you try to step forward, you can be held back. Yeah. And inside of all of that, um, I really the credit goes to Jackie Pissarello. She called me and said, what do you think? Should we do a women's um, boot camp? And I was like, absolutely, we should do it. And so we started um, thinking about how to create that and make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad you're doing it. You know, I'm just thinking as you're talking, even with the most egregious examples from the Me Too movement, you know, I'm thinking of Harvey is it Weinstein? Weinstein, yeah. yeah. You know, that even then, as you hear more and more women, and it seems pretty clear to me that he did some terrible stuff to women. Like, I don't know that you could argue, anyone could make a reasonable argument otherwise, but you can still, it's almost like you're bracing yourself for the backlash, you know, because when women do speak out in this way and sort of speak that truth about that experience, people don't want to believe it. No, uh, and um, and the, even women don't want to believe it, right? Like there's women. I think it was Donna Karen who, on the on TV, said, "Oh, it's not that big of a deal," and mm-hmm. you know, and even I think said, um, "You know, look at the way women dress. If they didn't want this, they shouldn't dress that way." And just stunning, stunning yeah. remarks. And, um, you know, once again, blaming women for uh, the terrible things that are happening to them. And, uh, yeah, no, I think, you know, Harvey Weinstein had a long run, as did Bill Cosby and, you know, folks like this. I think that not only is it that um, these abuses happen, then there's societal uh, uh, ways of um, interacting and how we're socially brought up. You don't talk about these things. These are embarrassing and shaming and you're made to feel like you did something wrong because you wore a certain dress or you had a drink of wine that night or something like that. You know, so there's those sort of really egregious examples of rape and sexual abuse and drugging women and this kind of thing, all the way out to, you know, just talking over the top of a woman while she's trying to speak. Mm-hmm. There's a full range of ways in which uh, these kinds of things happen. And I don't equate those two, but they all participate. Mm-hmm. Just, I think, to this culture of women not speaking. And, yeah. and I, I told you an example from earlier today, a big group at a meeting today, mostly women, and yet the first people to speak were all men. And I noticed this, and so I just raised my hand and started speaking. And I thought, that just is so those small things. And, I mean, I'm not saying we have to make it perfectly even or anything like that, but it, to me the male voices were the first ones to just feel comfortable just speaking. And that's just 
that kind of thing so often happens, so that we don't even notice it. And of course, right. I, I agree with you. It's a totally different ball game from you know sexual assault, and yet it just shows, I think, how pervasive it is and how hard for women to speak up. It's incredibly challenging. I mean, in my one of my work settings, um, there was a male person who just spoke over the top of me and other women all the time. And you could give an idea, and many women will identify with this. Like, uh, it's not, it's certainly not a singular event by any means, but say something, uh, and then like three minutes, and it doesn't get any attention. Like three minutes later, the male says it, and suddenly it's the best idea in the world. Right. <laughs> I would just scratch my head sometimes. I'm like, didn't I just say that? Like, I, sometimes I've even been in meetings and had, like, this completely perplexed look on my face. And I'm, like, looking around the room going, "Did like, am I, like, by my, am I in some other universe right now where somebody heard something come out of my mouth that was completely and utterly different than what was just said by that guy who said it, and now it's a great idea? Like, it's such an amazing thing. It truly like, is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what is happening? And, it, and it, it, what it does, what it did for me quite often was make me feel like, first, that what I, that I was crazy, really. Like, it, like it gave me a sense like I, and I wasn't smart enough, or I wasn't saying it right, or something like that. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's a social phenomenon, mm-hmm. and uh, that I'm not crazy. I'm smart enough to say things and have ideas, as are you, you know, and uh, um, it just, the way it works is that everybody looks to the man. And I've been to uh, meetings where a woman is talking and people are, like, texting and looking away and then the man starts talking and suddenly everybody's looking and it just goes on. These kinds of things go on and on and on. Um yeah. And, our, like, how to begin to, I mean, women have been trying to fix this for ages, um, for ages, and it still is troubling. And, uh, you know, we're talking about women today, but this happens in other diversity issues as well, skin color and what country you live in, how much money you have, Um and then no wonder that, it's the, that there's anger and people start to feel defeated and like nothing can change because it's just year after year after year and maybe even century after century where you don't see things shifting or, you, or things are getting better but at such a pace that and probably in my lifetime I will not see equal pay for um, women and men for equal jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that just makes me feel sad, right? Like equally talented people getting paid because of their gender versus the quality of the work they do. It's very frustrating. Yeah, disheartening. Two yeah. steps forward, one and a half steps backwards, and it just feels too slow. Yeah, <laughs> it's frustrating. Yeah, it feels very slow. Yeah. So I know that you really have a strong expertise in trauma work. You've done trauma work with men and women. You've written a book on ACT for PTSD. Um, And I know that trauma 
treatment for women, that's a topic in your workshop, and um, trauma treatment for women is something that is, you know, if you work with women, I think it's pretty likely that you'll see trauma. Um, do you have any ideas about, just as you've done all this work in this area, of anything that's unique about trauma for women or how you would approach it clinically with a woman? There are some things that are unique about it, but before I say that, one thing I do want to do is acknowledge my co-authors on those books, and mostly because they're female, and I want to make sure that... Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Dara Westrup wrote two of the books, uh, including the one on trauma, with me, and I just want to, um, you know, give a shout-out to her as well, uh, so that I don't take credit for um, something that was shared, which... By the way, is another difference between men and women. Yes. See, and this is wonderful that you're doing this, and I think this should be universal stance, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like we all worked on this kind of thing. Um, I do think about men and women a little bit differently when I'm working with uh, trauma, especially when I start thinking contextually about the history that they've had and what sort of... Um, social upbringing they've had. Like, for instance, um, if I'm going to do, if I'm going to be talking about acceptance or forgiveness or something like that from a trauma perspective, I mean, each, you know, each individual has their own take on those kinds of things, and I prefer to do a functional analysis analysis of individual behavior and how it's impacting them. But sometimes I want to be extra cautious uh, and be sure that I'm not uh, triggering something that um, has to do with just being female or being disempowered. So uh, sometimes my language will be altered just a little bit in terms of thinking about how I'm sharing something or what it means to um, work on values, for instance. If I'm working with a woman who um, comes from a long line of being oppressed and traumatized and she wants to bring her values to life, um, I really need to consider her context. And is she safe? Is what will this look like for her? Will she have the support and the and the the need her needs met inside of those contexts? Um, and I have to admit, I don't worry about it as much with men, and maybe I should. But uh, uh, if you're coming from a place of being disempowered already, it seems like there's things that you need to take a peek at and be extra sure that you're not doing something that perpetuates that or puts a woman in harm back in harm's way in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It does. It does. And it, it, I just, I'm thinking back to um, just the importance, I think, of acknowledging, you know, acknowledging those, that, those systems and the cultural disempowerment that goes on, whether it's sexism, racism, whatever it may be, um, that if, if that's not acknowledged and if that's not part of the context of the work, then that's that's disempowering, I think. Yeah. So acknowledging the ways in which the, the oppression has happened and has contributed to the problem instead of looking at it as a pathology within the person, right? 
Well, and here's here's another thing that I think is super important. Um, the way that we define pathology, especially for women, um, you know, makes us, I think, unnecessarily so, look more pathological, more problematic, more symptomatic. Mm-hmm. But if you start looking at all the contextual variables that a woman finds herself in, maybe some of the experiences that she's having have to do entirely with the situation that she's in. It's not that she has an internal symptom problem. It's that she has a contextual situational problem. And uh, I don't think we're – I think that we're such a – we're so oriented towards the medical model that – um, as a as a mental health uh, system that we don't think about, uh, de- like let's say a woman is depressed, like okay, what's going on there? Maybe it's not that she needs to feel better. Maybe it's that she needs to have a situation change. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we're so good about acting in those ways. Like I. I'd rather say she's not depressed, but she sure is in a terrible situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very different way to look at it instead of thinking, yeah, we need to fix you. It's like, let's take a look at what's not working. And That's exactly right. Right, right. And, and target our efforts there. Make your life better and the situation better. I think uh, the same thing would happen with trauma as well. And, um You know, just as I might be um, sensitive to racial issues, I want to be sensitive to women's issues uh, in trauma. And it's going to be different if you've come from a history of, let's say, being abused by, you know, a father across a long period of time inside of a society that says women should be quiet and shouldn't say things and they're not to be believed and they're sexual objects and they brought it on themselves. That might be different than working with a male who was sexually traumatized, um, but you know goes on to um, have, and, and well, he might hide it as well because it's not a it's not something that people typically talk 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 about. But he may not encounter the same barriers mm-hmm. as she would, and I need to be sensitive to those. And I'm going to be sensitive in both places, but there are things that I'm going to be thinking about for women that just aren't going to be as evident or maybe even apply for men. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and trauma aside, I'm just curious as you're doing, um, you know, I think some of the people who listen to this podcast are therapists. Some aren't, but many are. Um, are there other special considerations, I think, in working with women that you, that you might recommend for people and, and as people come to your workshop, like just things that, that therapists might overlook if they're, if they're on this mission to help empower women? Well, um, I think one thing that we tend to do as therapists, and this is a bit of a tricky place, I think, but we uh, definitely want our client to make decisions and choices about what they'd like to have happen in terms of their treatment, where they're headed. And uh, our job is to be collaborative uh, uh, and and let the client's values speak for where they're headed. In a way, though, it assumes that we are, as clinicians, neutral. 
or that we don't have convictions about uh, or values about how to be in the world or how we want to be in the world and what we care about and support. And this might be a bit controversial, I'm unsure, but I think as mental health providers, we need to be clear about that. Hmm. And we might even need to be clear about it with our clients. Um, I still want my clients, whoever I'm working with, to absolutely have choice and to um, head in the direction that they care about and want to go. But as a as a person who cares about women and um, the overcoming the oppression of women, I might in my sessions be talking some about how this plays out in their life and do they want to do anything about it. And if it seems relevant, I may share my point of view. And mm-hmm. I think some some clinicians might go, no, you can't do that. And uh, uh, But I've had some very important and um, uh, uh, explorations with women in my private practice about what it means to have a voice, to find your own voice, to, um, of course, always be safe. Always, you know, I always want women to be safe, but to to find a place where they feel like they're standing up um, in a way that's not about just simply hiding or, or mm-hmm. doing whatever uh, the male in their lives is suggesting that they do. Or, what, or however uh, a male partner, father, whatever might be um, acting in ways that are about you stay where you are and be quiet whilst I manage everything. And um, it might mean conflict for some people. And um, that's a challenging thing, uh, I think, overall, but even more challenging sometimes for women given their socialization. So I'm not exactly, um, like I'm, I'm not quiet about what I value. I don't put it on people, but like I'm not going to uh, sit in the room with a woman who's maybe in a violent relationship I'm using a more extreme example right now, and say, I support you being with your husband if that's what she chooses. Right. You're not going to stay neutral when it comes to that. I'm not going to stay neutral. And there's other places that are less dramatic where I'm not going to be neutral either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as you said, it's still their, ultimately their decision, but that's a place where maybe you might express some of this and maybe help, also just help see maybe something that they're not paying attention to. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Controversial maybe, but I, <laughs> yeah, I can see what you're saying, and I think that's that seems like it would be disingenuous of you not to. Yeah, well, or to pretend that I don't care about those things, or to mm-hmm. you know um, uh, see somebody walking into a situation that feels harmful or problematic, and to um, not have an authentic and true voice of my own. And I absolutely think that choice is imperative. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's empowering in itself, the choice, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So something else in your workshop, and I just think this is really interesting, is, uh, you, and you mentioned actually earlier when we were chatting about um, money, finances, and how, and I'm just really, I mean, I'm interested in this because I've been noticing more and more my own relationship with money and how I think to myself, you know, 
of course, I want money, don't get me wrong, but to me it doesn't feel like very strong on my list of values. And Like what does that say about my worth and my perceptions of my own worth and what's your take on the financial piece? Well, uh, Sandra Georgescu is going to be thinking or uh, speaking about that at the um, boot camp in San Diego, and I'm very happy to hear what she says. Uh, I'm going to be open and say, what is she? How is she going to talk about this? Right? I want to know more. And typically, when I think of women in finance, you know, a Susie Orman pops right. into my head or somebody <laughs> like that, and uh, a very wise person, I think, who tries to offer good advice to folks. But on in terms of a personal relationship with money, um, I kind of think that, and this is a, like a really sort of macro level of thinking about it, and I'll bring it back down to the individual, but capitalism has got us in a world of, um, what can I say here without swearing? It's got us <laughs> in a really bad place. Like, consumerism and capitalism is a really problematic thing. And uh, it's, it has kind of a male quality to it, right? Like, get earn as much money as you can so you can buy as many things as you can so that you can win. What? What are we going to mm-hmm. win in the long run? We are, we are not. We are a finite world with a finite amount of resources. But capitalism seems to imply that it's infinite. And so when I think about money more broadly speaking, I wonder what would happen if women could renegotiate how that looks. I'm not talking about communism or something like that, but like what would social capitalism look like or cooperative capitalism or capitalism that brings in the, you know, sort of the finite resources that we have and people think about that more. And like I wonder if if we were more cautious about what we ask for in terms of pay and if we were to think about things in terms of, you know, what else is happening by buying this or being in charge of that or getting that amount of money, you know, uh, and I don't, maybe there's some kind of financial name for something that's a bit more social, social capitalism maybe, but um, that, because it's sort of male-dominated right now and consumer-oriented. Mm-hmm. Although we know that women are the bit largest purchasers of things. Like they're a pretty big target population for let's advertise to them. And I just wonder what would happen if women said, eh, I'm not going to buy that. It doesn't mm-hmm. take into account the finitude of our Earth's resources. I bet you we'd have rapid change if women stood up and said, not going to do it. Yeah. That would be pretty powerful. That's sort of a macro level of thinking about financing and capitalism. If I bring it down to a more personal level, some of my own friends are making less than their um, colleagues doing the same job or more than the same job. Uh, They're uh, working very hard and... Um, I I would like to see them get equal pay or compensatory pay, which might mean they get paid more. And if you sort of look at, like, if you sort of look behind the scenes in some of these places, like in some organizations that I've been in, 
you'll see a man at their lead and then women doing all the work mm-hmm. to fulfill the duties to actually make it happen. And yet the money will go to the person at the lead. And I don't know. I don't. I'm that kind of a system feels upside down to me. Let's pay the people who do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, ideas aren't enough to be paid for. They they should make a lot of money for that. But uh, the, you know, uh, what about the people who actually implement it? And and there's just so many different kinds of places that we could look at money. And then if I bring it like even closer to like personal worth. And is it okay to ask for, for for more money? Is it okay to ask for as much as a man might ask for? And you know what I think a male would say is yes. Mm-hmm. You can ask for what I ask for. But women do that and they get turned down all the time. Uh, they get seen as aggressive. They get seen as like overvaluing themselves. So there's this funny thing that happens when women step up and ask for more. I've felt it personally. I've seen it personally. Uh, I've had it happen to me personally is what I mean, where um, uh, I've asked for as much as a man, and they say, well, we can't bring you then. But if a man says that's all I'll come for, they're like, okay. They accept the terms. And... I am unsure how to how to break that other than by policy and law. I mean, I I don't know how else to make that different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because talking about it, we've known for how long that women make less than women make seventy something cents on the man's dollar. We've known that forever, and it hasn't changed much. Yeah, and I think this is really similar to what we were talking about earlier with speaking out is that it's happening on all these different levels. And I think there's, to me, there's the internal stuff. Like me personally, do I ask? Do I speak up? Do I negotiate? Do I, you know, value my own contribution and try to seek the compensation I deserve? But there's also that broader cultural level of something changing at the bigger level. Because really until that happens, we can tell women to in the therapy room or in our personal lives, like, do this, speak up, you know, step up to the plate, take the lead. But it still doesn't address the bigger issue. And maybe we can kind of wrap up there just in terms of, um, you know, one thing that occurs to me is how do we get men on board for this too? Because they do have a lot of power. And it seems like we have a lot of males who I think in theory want to support this. How do we get them involved? And what are some of the cultural, I, I, I don't know, Robin, maybe tell me, what can I do to help change at that bigger level. You may not have the answer to that, but that's what I want to know because I can do stuff in my individual life with my friends, with my clients, in my small ways. Are there things that we can be doing in the bigger scheme of things to change the culture? It's a big question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I say keep doing those things that you're doing in those small ways. Those matter. That matters. And, uh, uh, and, you know, if every woman is doing it, then that means change is coming. Um, uh, And I also think, uh, as we were talking earlier about what does it mean to be empowered, is to uh, persist and be true to yourself. But but also give that a voice. Mm -hmm. 
and when you're uh, when you're feeling scared, like to step up and say it, and uh, to say this is what's happening, and I want to give this a, my uh, a voice, and um, I don't think we have to say I'm scared to do it every time, but certainly we can speak that, uh, or we can um, uh, call on our friends for support. And like this, women can do this really well is support each other. Mm-hmm. And, and what, you know, women, I think there's plenty of women who need to look to and be aware that, you know, this is, this is happening. Because um, women can also uh, treat women um, as uh, uh, women can participate in the oppression of women. So mm-hmm. both men and women need to pay attention to this and open their eyes about it. But I think persist and stay true and then give that a voice. Yeah. Well, those are wise words, and that's, I think if we all join forces in that, change will happen however gradually. And I appreciate so much you voicing so many of these issues and just being so brave about speaking out about this in this format and other, you know, formats where I've heard you be a leader in, in speaking about this. Um, so, yeah, thank you again, Robin. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I, I hope that um, all goes well with the podcast in general, and uh, I look forward to, I'm signing up, I look forward to hearing more. Oh, thank you so much, Robin. See, women supporting women right here. Women to And speaking of, um, anyone who might be interested in the Act for Women Boot Camp, more about um, female empowerment and you know, doing this work through acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, the, the workshop is August 16th through 19th in San Diego and has a really fantastic lineup, Robin and um, several other really amazing women who will be there speaking. So I hope some folks will consider uh, signing up online for that. And Robin, thank you again. We will look forward to talking to you again when your book is coming out. My pleasure. I look forward to it as well. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens. <laughs>